going to pray about a couple things I want to share with you briefly. Uh, Terry Blankenship, the pastor of um, FBC Greenville, has not recovered well, and things are not going well for him. Uh, it looks like he may be resigning. I think there's some different thoughts out there, but it looks like he may be resigning, may have to, because he may not ever be able to preach again, just the thought processes involved with exposing the word. So that's a, you can imagine how traumatic that would be for Terry, for his family, for FBC Greenville. And uh, we want to lift up our sister church and lift up this family. And uh, two, we want to pray this morning for our youth. Uh, we sent off a, a herd of youth yesterday to a youth camp for the next few days. And the cool thing is, was just seeing all these little bitty kids that used to be toddlers at Crosspoint. And this youth ministry is now like huge. So, um, man, it's just neat, neat to, neat to see what's going on and we can pray for their time together. Let's pray. Got a couple things this morning. First of all, we want to pray for another church in our community and, uh, for FPC Greenville. Just, just imagining how traumatic that would be for that church family, um, for Terry and his family, um, the massive curveball that you've thrown this people. Lord, I pray that they will grip you tighter right now, that they will trust you more. I pray that they will lean on each other and lean on you in a way that is um, faith displaying. Uh, Lord, I pray that these um, trials that they face as they search for a new pastor, as they uh, help care for Terry and his family as a church, Lord, I pray that your goodness and your grace and your mercy in and among your people will be on display through FBC Greenville. Whatever we can be involved in their journey uh, as, a, as another church in this community, Lord, I pray that you would give us insight into that, whether it's just lifting them up this morning or whether it's a word of encouragement uh, to a, someone that works next to us in a cubicle that is a member there. Lord, we pray that we'll be attentive whether something that should be more involved, pray that we'll be attentive and responsive and come alongside this people in this trying hour. Also, Lord, we just want to uh, just say thank you for raising up just a really cool, uh, wonderful group of young worshipers. Uh, just to marvel at the depth of faith and understanding of you and your word among our, our youth, and I'm just so thankful that they've had a chance to get away these next few days. Lord, I pray that even right now that you are um, opening the eyes of hearts, that you are renewing minds, that you are stirring up by way of reminder. Lord, I'm thankful that right now that together that they are holding fast, that they are drawing near, and I pray that they are considering how to stir one another up to love and good works. Pray for Scott as he teaches. Pray for Aaron and the other folks that are helping. Uh, for Adam, Laura, Krista, all the other workers that are involved in this. Just so thankful for their otherness and their heart and willingness to be spent on these young people. Lord, I pray for a real sense of community and a real um, connectedness between these kids. I pray that you would guard them from cliques, guard them from huddles, but that they would, across ages even, and across uh, experiences, across public school, private school, home school, that all those barriers would just be 
removed and that the most, the, the thing that they have in common in Christ would be so massive that there are no differences. Thankful for uh, how we get to spend the next few minutes, Lord. I turn this time over to you. Treasuring already a crazy story of faith in a really human guy. Pray that you'll be enjoyed in these next few minutes. In Christ's name, amen. You can turn to Hebrews just for a moment. Hebrews is really just a launching pad for us this summer. We've been in Hebrews for the last couple of years, and we, uh, approaching chapter 11, considered what a treat it would be to really slow down and to consider each of the faith heroes in the chapter and why the Hebrews preacher would bring them up as a model of faith and why he would point the Hebrews church who's considering bailing on Christianity to the models in this chapter. So for the last few weeks, we have been together considering each of these faith heroes one at a time. And this morning we're in verse 21. We're going to be looking at a man named Jacob who will later be named, renamed Israel. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, and then we're going to move all the way back to Genesis. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 28. As you're turning there, I'm going to give a little bit of context, trying to catch you up on the story as we considered it last week. Last week, we met Isaac, and in meeting Isaac, we have to take a look at Jacob and Esau. Last week, we found that Jacob is the grandson of Abraham and the twin, one of the twin sons of Isaac, his twin brother was named Esau. Like Abraham and Isaac, he's on the receiving end of some massive promises and blessings from God. The blessings and promises to him are going to be that you're going to own and possess this land, this Canaan land. That you're going to bless the nations and you're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sand. Well, Jacob, when we met him last week, we found that from the outset, he received that blessing, but he received that blessing through deception. When we met Jacob last week, we found that right from the outset, he was a deceiver, blessed by Isaac through deception and, thankfully, God's providence. What I want to do in these next few minutes is I want to cover and span 21 chapters worth of story. I was thinking this, this week, I was thinking how thankful I am for this church that can do something like that. If you were to share, so, in fact, somebody asked me this week, said, are you preaching this in more than one sermon? I said, no, this should be one sermon. They said, well, I don't know how you can pull that off. Well, you can pull it off because it's Crosspoint Fellowship and it's a very attentive people. And I'm not going to read a, a lot of this. I'm going to sort of summarize some sections, reading a few excerpts. And we're really going to focus on chapter 28, or excuse me, 48 of Genesis as um, the background for what the Hebrews preacher is talking about. But we have to get familiar with these 21 chapters and this story about this guy before that's really going to make sense. So the plan for the morning is we're going to cover 21 chapters of Genesis. We're going to land really, we're going to read through verse 48. 
we're going to address a couple of obvious questions that if they're, they're not obvious to you, then maybe it's something you can hope for, that as you grow in your Bible study and your Bible reading, that you will learn to ask good questions. We're going to address a couple of questions and then a couple thoughts is where we're going to land for the morning. Okay, that's the map for our morning. Beginning in chapter 28, verses 1 through 5, to where we pick up from last week. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, to your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. Jacob heads out at the beginning of our story today, or where we pick up, he heads out to Uncle Laban's house to find a wife. Now, in these days, the, the, the um, um, family tree was a little bit more vertical than we would hope it would be now. It's more like a pine tree where they go to their aunts and uncles to find wives and things like that. So he's going to his uncle's house to find a wife. And on the way, he has a wonderful dream. I want to read this little passage here in this next chapter because it's where we're going to end our morning in the supper, and it's worth reading. Chapter 28, verse 10. Jacob is on his way to Laban's house. He left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun, that, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up to the earth, set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall be spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. It's a wonderful dream where we'll land later on this morning. In our supper. Genesis chapter 29, I'm not going to share any excerpts from this chapter. I'm going to try and summarize for you the crazy story of Jacob getting hitched. He shows up there at Laban's house, and Laban turns out he has two daughters. He has a daughter named Leah, who's the older, and is weak in the eyes. We don't know what that means necessarily. She may have been blind or partially blind. She may have had some other eye issues, but she's weak in the eyes. And apparently to him, at least, she's weak on the eyes. He's not that interested in her. He's interested more in Rachel, who apparently is quite the cutie. Jacob has it bad for Rachel and agrees with Laban, Uncle Laban, 
to earn her. Seven years worth of work to earn her hand. Now, don't think that I haven't thought about this, having a daughter. I've got some things I want to do around the house. So if you've got a young man that's interested in her, then my wheels are spinning. Jacob has it bad for Rachel and agrees to seven years worth of labor to earn her. Well, seven years later, apparently deception runs in the family. And Laban, on their wedding night, switches Rachel for Leah. And Jacob unintentionally consummates the marriage with Leah. Wakes up the next morning, confronts Laban and says, what in the world have you done? And they make a new agreement. And Laban says, you know, you know what? You can have Rachel if you work for me another seven years. Well, Jacob has it bad enough for Rachel that he agrees to that. And in fact, from this point on, Rachel continues to be his favorite wife. At this point, he's got two, Leah and Rachel. In chapters 29 and 30, I also hear, I'm not going to read any excerpts, I'm going to try and summarize one of the craziest birth chapters in our Bible. Leah, remember his first wife, the eldest sister, is apparently quite fertile. And right off the bat, she starts having some babies, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. You can start counting this morning if you'd like to and try and sort out the tribes of Israel. This is where this comes from. The first four children born at this point are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah to Leah. Rachel, though, wasn't getting pregnant. So she then, sounding a lot like her grandmother, Sarah, says, you know what, I think I'll have my servant girl, Bilhah, go in and sleep with Jacob. So she does that, and Bilhah gives birth to Dan and Naphtali. Okay, we've got six kids now. Well, Leah stops having babies, and then she decides, hey, if it's good enough for Rachel to give her servant to Jacob, then maybe I can give my servant to Jacob. Zilpah goes into Jacob and has Gad and Asher. Okay, the, kid, the kids are growing, the family is, is getting bigger, and there are multiple female relationships at this point, two wives and then two sort of pseudo-wives. Leah then, in a weird turn, trades some mandrakes to Rachel for some nights, overnights, some date nights with Jacob. Mandrakes were believed to be something that brought fertility. So Rachel at this point is saying, man, I need some mandrakes. Leah's got some mandrakes. I'll tell you what, you can have some date nights with Jacob. You give me those mandrakes and maybe I'll finally have some babies. Well, Leah on those date nights ends up getting pregnant and giving birth to Issachar and Zebulun. And then later on in chapter, 20, excuse me, in chapter 30, verse 22, a really sweet and encouraging passage. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb, and she gave birth to little Joseph. This is actually what you think would be the 11th kid. It turns out it's the 12th kid because there's been one daughter born, born to this point, and her name was Dinah, and she's born to Leah. So there are 12 kids in this family at this point, 11 boys and one girl in a crazy chapter. And chapter 30 is a story of him growing his flock. By the end of the chapter, he ends up being quite the rancher. 
And chapter 31 is the story of him fleeing from Laban. Listen to the first few verses of chapter 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. He's talking about the significant flock that he has now. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. Wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So at this point, add to his storyline, now he's fleeing from Laban, who's also his uncle, who's now his father-in-law, who has been his boss. I want you to take in all these details. I think this is the first time that I've ever looked at Jacob in one sitting, and it's startling. If you take in these story, this story and these details, then I think you'll be left at the end of the morning where I'm left. The next two chapters, chapter 32 and 33, are an interesting account of Jacob wrestling with God. He leaves with a limp, he loses and leaves with a limp, and he's renamed at that point Israel, which means strives with God. I told you that Jacob would be renamed at some point. That's when this happens. Israel means strives with God. From this point on, we may use, depending on where we're reading, the names interchangeably, Jacob or Israel. So you need to remember those are the same dude. Also in this chapter, he has to face Esau, and that actually goes surprisingly well. In chapter 34, his daughter, his only daughter, Dinah, is raped. I want you to take this in for a moment and just think about what's happened so far in the life of this really human guy. He's got marriage problems. He's got 12 kids. Let's just say we know he's got kid problems. He's got marriage problems, time four. Really, it's definitely time two, but really more like four. He's got sibling problems with Esau. He's got work problems with Laban. He's got in-law problems with Laban. And now his only daughter is raped. And then in verse 35, his favorite wife, Rachel, gets pregnant again. Exciting news. And she gives birth to little Benjamin. But she dies in childbirth. Also in this chapter, if things are not dark and heartbreaking enough, his oldest son, Reuben, his firstborn, after Rachel dies goes and sleeps with Rachel's servant, Bilhah, who was also sort of his pseudo-wife, who's also the, the mother of Dan and Naphtali. Whatever you may think your family is, however messed up you may think your family is, I'm just going to tell you right now, I hope you're realizing Jacob takes the cake. Man, things are crazy. All it says about Israel and Jacob when he heard the news in verse 22 of chapter 35, all it says is, and Israel heard of it, speaking of what Reuben did. And later on, when it comes time to bless his sons, Reuben does not get the blessing of the oldest. Reuben forfeited the blessing of the oldest. It must have been heartbreaking for Jacob as the blessing of the oldest goes to Joseph and Joseph's sons. Chapter 37 of Genesis begins the saga of conflict between his sons. You can add that to the list as well. Kid problems, sibling issues between members of his family with Joseph 
at the center of it. Joseph is beaten up by his brothers and sold into slavery, and Jacob has to hear these terrible words. Look at chapter 37. I want you just to imagine for a moment being Jacob, hearing these words in chapter 37, beginning in verse 31. All that's happened to Jacob, and here's what he hears from his sons. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons, and at this point he has daughters, rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. I'm going to die mourning over this loss. Thus his father wept for him. Imagine hearing those words. The story continues, and Jacob's not aware of any of this, but in chapter 41, Joseph rises to power during a famine. Jacob is well aware of the famine because add to the mix of Jacob's problems that he's had over the course of his lifetime, he's trying to figure out what he and this big growing family are going to eat. Just let that hit you. I mean, that's something we don't even have to think about. He's trying to figure out how we're going to eat. Meanwhile, Joseph is in Egypt. The famine hits Canaan so hard that Jacob slash Israel sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain in chapter 42. And then in chapter 46, Jacob, Israel, and his family move to Egypt and specifically to Goshen to survive the famine. It's also in this chapter that Jacob, Israel, is reunited with Joseph. And he, it's good news there, but he has to come to grips with the fact that his other sons lied to him about Joseph all these years. And then we pick up in chapter 48. Comes time for the blessing. The context, we're getting now into the context behind the Hebrews' reference Jacob's last hours comes time for his blessing in chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now keep in mind who these kids are. I want you to sort all this out. Joseph is at this point the firstborn of Rachel to Jacob. Joseph's sons. They're born in Egypt, born to an Egyptian mother, but to a Hebrew father, Joseph. So Joseph hears that his father is ill, and he takes his two sons, come here, boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. You're going to see later, they must have been wee boys, little lads. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. And then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, you see they're using Israel and Jacob interchangeably here. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now, Joseph, 
your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they're now mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine just like my other sons. If you notice from this point on, when the tribes of Israel are mentioned, there's no tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe of Ephraim and a tribe of Manasseh. Because these two grandsons are now counted as sons. And the children that you fathered after them, you can have them, Joseph. But these two boys, they're going to be mine. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he says, who are these? I wonder if it was kind of the grandpa. Who do you have with you there? Of course, he knows who they are. He's already talked about them. Who are these? Joseph says to his father, these are my sons, my lads, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel were dim with age, dim like his dad's, but he wasn't blind. He wasn't blind to faith matters at this point. He's seeing quite well, as you're about to see. The eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, man, this is a sweet moment. I never expected to see your face. And behold, not only have I seen yours, God has let me see your offspring also. And then Joseph removed them from his knees. They must have been wee little lads. He removed Ephraim and Manasseh from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand. Ephraim was the youngest. He would go toward the left hand of Israel, and that way he would be treated and blessed as the youngest, not blessed as the oldest. And in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near him. Basically, Joseph is helping his dad sort out who's the oldest. Make sure that your right hand, Israel, is on my oldest, and your left hand is on my youngest. Israel, though, in keen vision, stretches out his right hand, and he laid it on the hand of the youngest. He does a little switcheroo there. He puts his hands out like this. And his left hand he puts on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, through the mess after mess after mess that I've been through, the angel, this heavenly being who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. It must have looked like a little wrestling match, a little arm wrestling match there. Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, 
his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God be with you and will bring you again to the land of your forefathers or your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. What a wonderful chapter. This is the context for the Hebrews 11 reference. Of all the places he could have grabbed in Jacob's life, this is the story that he points to. The next chapter is the chapter that involves the blessings for each of the sons. It starts out with Reuben getting the anti-blessing and in some ways the curse. And it finishes with his death. Verse 28. Actually, let's just look at verse 33. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. This Hebrew 11 model faith chapter is, is taking us to this little story here, this little blessing of the grandsons. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. I want to address a couple of these questions, but first of all, I want to read a passage that's been sort of a theme passage for us in Hebrews chapter 11. I'd like for you to see this passage so you can turn back over there. Keep your hand over there in Genesis because we'll like to have to look at it at some point. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. This is a theme passage for this entire chapter. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Think about the context for this blessing as Israel is blessing his grandsons. He's not living in this land that he's been promised that he will possess. He's exiled, famine driving him from that land. Now his family is growing to be sort of sand and star-like. And here, like his grandfather and his father, though, he died not having received all the promises, but he greeted them from afar. He lived like a sojourner in his life, living for the city to come. And it's fitting in these final moments that one who lived his life as a sojourner should be leaning on the head of his staff in his final hours. The staff was the picture of the traveler, the image of the sojourner and the pilgrim. Now, a couple of questions that I want to deal with in these next few minutes and then just a couple of thoughts. The first question is, why in the world did the Hebrews preacher refer to the grandson's blessings and not the son's? In ancient Hebrew tradition, they made big to-do over the blessings of the son's. They didn't make so much to do over the blessings of the grandsons. So maybe putting some more distance between Judaism and Christianity, here he's pointing his people to, look, in some ways I'm blessing some Gentiles. Some Gentiles. Some Egyptian-born offspring. In some ways he seems to be pointing them toward an other-than-Jewish tradition to this new 
Christian context. Man, it's a beautiful thing to wonder about, and that seems like a good, good reason that he may have done that. What seems, though, most likely to me is that the Hebrews preacher is pointing them to the incredible faith involved in blessing Joseph and his grandsons. Think about who they were for a minute. At this point, Joseph and his grandsons are princes of Egypt. Joseph is his son, and that Ephraim and Manasseh are his grandsons, yes, by birth. But as much as that, they are princes of Egypt. And he's blessing them with things that they haven't even received, that he hasn't even received. He's blessing them with things that they can't even touch at this point. He could have expected the distant promises of God, no real competition for the trappings of Egypt. I wonder the faith involved with saying, Joseph, come to me and bring your sons to me because I want to bless them when they're wearing Egyptian clothing maybe gold all over them. They probably looked very Egyptian at this point, especially the grandsons. They probably had everything that they needed. And he's blessing them with a land that they're going to possess someday when they're neck deep in blessings already. He could have expected the distant promises of God, no real competition with the trappings of Egypt. I'm going to tell you right now, this is my struggle oftentimes from week to week and month to month. Faith has got to fuel this work of exposing God's word and exposing and reminding God's people of his promises week in, week out, because I feel like sometimes we're neck deep in Egypt, surrounded by the trappings. Man, I I heard Kevin DeYoung describe this feeling as that sometimes when he's preaching, he feels like he has a little pea shooter, and he's shooting from the pulpit, and the people are behind bunkers, concrete bunkers. That's the way I feel at times when I'm sitting here reminding us of the promises and the hope that we have and the blessings of God. Meanwhile, we're neck deep in the blessings. And I use blessings with air quotes of Egypt. We could call it the trappings of Egypt. Does any of us have real needs that aren't met easily? You have anything that you need that you can't get right down the street at Walmart or Brookshire's if you have more refined tastes? Like me? Seriously, is there anything you can't get from Amazon and have it at your doorstep in two days? Is there any physician that you can't find in Greenville or any dentist? Think about the access that we have to things, the trappings of Egypt that we have right here. And yet week after week, we're reminding each other, listen, what really matters, what the real treasure is, are the promises that we have that God has made to us. It must have taken tremendous faith for him to bless them with distant promises of God while they're wearing Egyptian clothing. Man, I was encouraged by the Hebrews passage. It's on in front of us a little bit about Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm encouraged with the reality there. Some people that say, you know what? I live in Egypt but I ain't no Egyptian. I live in Egypt, but I'm not going to be an Egyptian. I'm going to choose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I'm encouraged week by week. What compels me is knowing that there are other worshipers, other people that live in Egypt that will say, you know what? 
My heart isn't set on that. I'm not living for this city. I'm living for the city to come. And I need to be reminded of the promises week after week after week because I forget. Man, that encourages me. Why in the world would this Jacob, this Israel, bless them with unrealized promises when they're bathing in privilege and riches? Why would he do that? Because faith compelled him. And I hope faith compels you as parents to remind your children of the promises of God, even though they may not have any real needs. I hope that faith compels you to remind your neighbors and your workmates, your workmates, that you might think, they don't have a need in the world. They're quite content. I don't even see a crisis that I can speak into to know that there are some Moseses out there unrealized that will hear about these future promises and by faith they will connect. So you, by faith, keep sharing. All the grain in Egypt doesn't compare to the bread of life. All the grain in Egypt doesn't compare to the bread of life. All the riches of Egypt don't compare to this, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen? Man. That's not even to our points yet. That's just answering a question, but that's, that's some good medicine right there. I needed to see that. Second question, why did he do the switcheroo? The little hand switcheroo. What's in keeping with Isaac's blessing. Isaac was blessed instead of Ishmael. It's in keeping with his own blessing. Jacob was blessed, the younger, instead of Esau. And it's in keeping with God's otherworldly design to choose the foolish things to confound the wise. It's in keeping with God's design to choose the least awesome so that he would be seen as the most awesome, the most graceful, and get the most glory. Man, it's just fitting. It's fitting. It's in keeping with his design to give hearty blessings for the least likely. Amen? Anybody else feel like the least likely with me? <laughs> Anybody else scandalized and ravaged by the crazy gospel that we walk in, the good news that we walk in that's not based on your merit, not based on the fact that you deserved it, but you're a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors just like me. You're a bunch of heel-grabbing Jacobs, a bunch of deceivers like me, that he would set his love on the likes of us. Why would he do the divine switcheroo? Because he's God and he does like stuff like that. That's what I love about our God. That's what separates this faith from every other religion. Every other religion says blessings come to the best and the brightest. The Christian gospel says blessings come to the least likely, like you and me. Man, if that doesn't stir your heart, you need to connect to the gospel. We need to sit and talk together. We need to sit and pray together because that is the good news. Now, the thoughts, two thoughts. First, Jacob died so well. He died so well. He finished the race well. And the passage that says, I love the way it says it, he was gathered to his people. Man, that is some good medicine. Though his body was weak. Leaning on the head of his staff, his faith was strong to the end. 
This could be about Jacob. Proverbs 4.18, listen to this. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. I've asked myself the question, I hope you've asked yourself the question, why would this preacher, this Hebrews preacher, refer to this moment in Jacob's life? He could have picked the wrestling match. He could have picked the night that he slept on a rock and had a dream. He could have picked some other times in his storyline. Why did he go right here? And I cannot help but wonder that a wise shepherd, this Hebrews preacher, may be preparing his people for death. It's the one sure thing that comes to all. Whatever tribulations and trials you may face, it is the one thing that unites us and unites them. For the Hebrews church has some tougher times in store, and Rome will only grow more aggressive. And the Jews there in Rome will only grow more aggressive. Rome will eventually entertain the masses with the torn flesh of these saints and light their gardens with their flaming bodies. I wonder if he's preparing them for death. I think a wise shepherd does that, and a wise shepherd points them to the reality that true faith dies well. It's the one thing we can be sure of is death. It's going to come to us all. And here we see it shining brighter and brighter until full day. We've had some front row seats to that as a church. Those of you that remember Keith McCord, we watched him die well. 31 years old with his wife and newborn in the room died of cancer a few years ago. We watched his faith shine brighter and brighter. Some of you were here just not too long ago to watch Billy Vaughn die well, shining brighter and brighter till full day because that's what faith does. Spurgeon said, With believers it may rain in the morning, Thunder at midday and pour torrents in the afternoon, but it must clear up ere the sun go down. Man, we watched it in Keith. We watched it in Billy in this morning. We watched it in Jacob. I hope that if I'm at your deathbed, I watch it in you, or if you're at mine, you watch it in mine. Because that's what faith does. Man, it lands the plane and it pulls it into the hangar and it dies well. It's meant to bathe the final moments. I thought this morning how fitting it was that we sang in Christ alone. We didn't coordinate this, but I actually had the words printed out before I walked in here this morning. The last little section there in that song that we sing so often. As I was studying this story, I was thinking to myself these words, no guilt in life, no fear in death. No guilt in life, no fear in death. From life's first cry to final breath. And I'm sitting here thinking, what song is that? What song is that? What song is that? And I pulled it up. It's Christ alone. We sing it all the time. I've been inundated and saturated with that reminder that there is no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. That's why we can die well with no fear, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. 
Man, I'm glad that we sung that this morning. That was fitting. The second thought that I have for you this morning is that his faith grew over his lifetime. It grew over his lifetime. It didn't wane. His life was a mess. It's my first time to see it all in one sitting. His life was a mess, but he grew in faith with each passing year and each passing trial. He's got marriage problems. Do any of you have marriage problems ever? Anybody ever have any conflict with your spouse? Anybody else? Well, he's got it times two, and really, in reality, he's got it times four. Add in Bilhah and Zilpah, he's got it times four. Marriage issues. He's got baby issues. Anybody says, man, I got too many babies to have faith. It's just, I, I got too much going on, kid stuff. He's got 12 of them. He's actually got 13 by the time Benjamin's born. 13. Counting Dinah in there. He's got in-law problems. Some of you say, man, I got, man, my, my in-laws, it's the most strained relationship in the world. Look at this deal with Laban. <laughs> He's got in-law problems. He's got boss and work problems. Some of you are like, man, I got some serious boss issues going on right now. It's such a beatdown. I don't want to make light of that. That can be massive. Every single day when you got this black cloud hanging, chasing you around, I've heard some of your stories. Man, what a beatdown that could be working for Jeff Williams. Oh, excuse me. I just saw Jeff over there smiling. He's enjoying being his own boss as I'm talking about this. But some of you, man, you work with a, some really tough, work in some really tough contexts. This guy did too. He had boss problems, work problems. Laban and his sons made life difficult for him. He had sibling problems. Any of you have any sibling issues? Brothers or sisters strained? Well, he did too. His daughter... His only daughter, Dinah, is raped. Some of you have had some of the most senseless, heartbreaking things happen to you over the course of your lifetime at different points. Well, so did Jacob. His only daughter is a victim of a senseless, wicked, heartbreaking crime. Some of you have dealt with loss, terrible loss. Well, so did Jacob. He lost his favorite wife in childbirth to his youngest. He lost his true love. His oldest son breaks his own heart. Any of y'all ever experienced that? Those of you who have grown sons? His oldest son breaks his own heart sleeping with Rachel's servant. He then loses his son Joseph. As far as he knows, he's dead, ripped to, ripped to pieces by wild animals. He deals with famine trying to figure out what am I going to feed this big old family. He learns later that his sons deceived him years ago, watching him weep, watching him tear his clothes, watching him wear sackcloth, and then learning they betrayed their brother Joseph. And then in chapter 48, Verse 16, it's all the more beautiful when you think about all these things in view. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. This heavenly God that has redeemed me, the one I wrestled with, the one that beat me and gave me a lifelong limp, this one redeemed me from all of them. John Owen said he reflects on all the hazards, 
all the trials, all the evils that befell him and the exercise of his faith in them all. Now all his dangers were past, all his evils conquered, all his fears removed. He retains by faith a sense of the goodness and the kindness of God in rescuing him out of them all. That's faith. The reason I'm bringing all these things out is I want you to think about this for a moment. Do you say that do you say these things about your hazards and your trials and your evils that have befallen you? Do you see a good and kind God as sovereign over them all? Or do you see your hazards and trials and evils as different? It's got to be one of the most effective and terrible lies of Satan to make you think your difficulties are unique. What a great tool he has in his toolbox. To make you think that your difficulties and your trials and your hazards are too big for the promises of God. That has nothing to do with what I'm going through. It did for Jacob. All the mess that he went through. The promises of God fed him and fueled him. I think Satan would love for you to think that your situation is too challenging for faith. What God's people should know is the time for faith is not after you get out of your mess, but in your mess. That's when faith grows. That's when faith flourishes. That's when faith shines brighter and brighter in your mess, in your marital struggle, in your heartbreak, in your trials, in your loss, in your sorrows, in your difficulties, with that boss. That's when faith grows. That's the time to believe in him the most. Man, don't let these kinds of trials pull you from his people and his ministry. I cannot tell you how many times I've watched it happen. We got too many kids to show up for corporate worship. It's just too hard. You got 13? My boss is just beating me to death. My schedule's just crazy. It's too hard for me to show up and eat what God's people eat and walk with God's people. Man, Jacob pressed on in it. Faith presses on through this kind of stuff. Satan wants you to believe, though, that you need something God hasn't offered in his word and with his people. You need something special. Man, let me tell you something. There's nothing better than this. Don't let things like this list that I went through or your version of them derail your worship. They should fuel your worship. Somebody says, man, I hadn't seen him for a few weeks or a few months at corporate worship. Man, my wife and I, we've been struggling. I'm thinking, why didn't you come to eat? My wife and I have been struggling. What do you think we're all fixed? Do you not come to gather corporately because you think we don't have any struggles? Do you think that we're all cured and immune to those sorts of things? That's why I have enjoyed over the 11 years that I've stood at this pulpit and the one in that building over there being really open and honest about the struggles that my wife and I have been through. They have fueled faith for me. Man, don't you dare say, I can't come to corporate worship because I'm having marital problems. There's no place you should be other than corporate worship. You need to eat. You need to gather with God's people that have come alongside you and say, man, let me pray with you. Tell me what's going on. Let me be your brother in this. Let me help you work through this. Let me love on you because you need it right now. 
Man, don't let these kind of trials keep you from faith. And faith matters. And faith food. Faith grows in the mess and through the mess. Man, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. That's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of God that I need. The last thing is just a brief thought is that faith seems to be sort of hereditary. I say sort of because it's not a given. There are plenty of faithful people that didn't have faithful children and faithful offspring. But I can say this, it's hereditary in the respect that your faith and how you move as a worshiper is going to affect your offspring in some way. It did here, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now we're talking about five generations of faith that's woven all through these stories. Reminded me of Scott's quote from his sermon a few weeks ago, and this is not exact, but it was something like this. When we stand with our children in eternity, it won't be as daddy and mommy. It won't be as son and daughter, but it will be as blood-bought brother and sister in God's family. That's what unites these generations is faith where they actually become blood-bought brothers and sisters. I hope that you're seeing the importance and the impact of your faithfulness to your children and to your children's children as your blood-bought brothers and sisters. I hope, too, that if your faith was and is shared by your parents and your grandparents, that you enjoy that. And you thank your God for that, that you have the greatest inheritance person can know. Let me pray and we'll distribute the elements for our supper. God, I'm so thankful for this really human story. I'm thankful for the things that you've shown us in these last few minutes in Jacob's life, marital problems, babies everywhere, in-law problems, boss and work and uncle problems, sibling problems, heartbreaking, senseless crime, terrible, tragic loss, famine. These real human things, Lord, I'm thankful that we got to see that it's in that context and in that storyline that faith grew in a faithful man. And God, I beg for that in us as a people. I beg for that in me that it grows brighter and brighter until my last breath. I pray that for my members of my family. I pray that for my fellow elders, for our deacons here and their families. And I pray that for our small group shepherds. I pray that for every member and every visitor this morning here. Lord, we can't muster it. We can't grit our teeth and produce it. Faith is something you work in us and we see it here and we beg for it. God, we are so thankful for how we've spent these last few minutes. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements. I'm not going to sit on your juice. Don't worry. I love an, an opportunity in a sermon to remind everyone of our imperfection. I love it because, man, that's, that is, 
You know, the faith in these heroes' lives, the more we see as we study their lives, is not perfect, perfect performance. It's not heroic performance. It's heroic faith in mess after mess after mess. That's the difference between faith and some weird perception of what Christianity or faith should be. Man, our good news is not life is going to be perfect. In fact, it, it will probably be challenging and messy. I think, it, you know, as I often refer to our marital problems, I've learned more about myself in our 19 years of marriage than I, wouldn't, than I would have had it not happened. Being married to an awesome, awesome woman and being myself very difficult at times. I would not have learned that. So it's in the mess that I've learned to depend on a good shepherd. One of the things that I enjoyed as we went through the uh, John chapter 10 was learning about the good shepherd and that imagery that travels and that the wise sheep are not some, they haven't somehow figured out the wiles and ways of, of uh, wolves. You know, the wise sheep aren't the ones that have somehow learned to identify, oh, that's poisonous grass. The wise sheep are the ones that sit close to the shepherd. That's what the old sheep do. It's the young, stupid sheep that think, I don't need him. So, man, that, that's what faith looks like as it's growing. I'm needy and dependent rascal. <laughs> so I'm enjoying we had a chance to revisit that this morning. Let me share uh, the passage with you. I told you when we started this morning, this is where we would end as well. Uh, it's a pretty cool dream. He lays his head on this rock just still baffles me that he couldn't roll up a blanket or something. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. Now, turn to, I want you to see this. I know we typically, I don't have you turn somewhere during the supper, but I do want you to see this passage because it's such a beautiful connection. John chapter 1. <clears throat> fitting that we end our morning with this passage and take our supper mindful of what's been fulfilled in Christ. This passage this, this, that I just read, this account where he has this dream and he sees this ladder and the angels ascending and descending and he sees this access that this ladder gives and he, he hears the blessing renewed. You're going to be, you're going to own the land. You're going to be as numerous as the sand and the stars, um, and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your offspring. It's in this context that uh, I, want you to, I want you to think about that context as I read this passage about another Israelite. Genesis, or excuse me, John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law... And also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Now watch Nathanael. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. This is like a redeemed Jacob. This is like a New Testament version of Jacob after he wrestled with God, after he's renamed. There is a connection here where he's pointing out an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, unlike Jacob before his naming. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You're the king of this Israelite, is what he says right there, effectively. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. If you think for a moment, this Jacob dream and account isn't in view as this is unfolding. If you haven't seen the clues already, listen to what unfolds next. You'll see greater things than these, Israelite. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The beauty there is basically he's saying, you know what? I'm the ladder that Jacob dreamt of. I'm the access that Jacob dreamt of on that rock, on that starry night. He is our access. He is how the families of the earth are blessed, period. He is how God's offspring will be as numerous as the sand and the stars. That's you and me. That's our brothers over on the other side of the world that are serving in their little church context right now. Our brother that's serving way down in the tip of Mexico right now. Other sand and other stars. He is the assurance that we will someday possess a new heavens and a new earth. He is the assurance. Man. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in him. Amen? What a great thing for us to have in view and have on our minds and hearts as we take the supper together, realizing this access was purchased. It was purchased through the work of the cross. The true innocent dying in our place and bearing our sins and then being risen to the Father's right hand. Remembering that and enjoying that. Together in faith, let's take and eat. I got a big old piece. Excuse me. I, I did. I need to be thinking, sitting here chewing. I hear myself chewing over the speaker. In faith, let's take and drink. Thank you all for being here this morning. I want to encourage you to pray for our youth and for those workers while they're off and uh, away. And um, looking forward to hearing what God is done doing when they return. I'm going to send you off with a benediction. So actually you can stand and then we'll be dismissed after this. I know you just sat down. That's what we're doing today. Just kind of up and down. Just trying to keep you off balance a little bit. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.
Y'all have a great week.